introduction, I'd like to introduce to you one of my least joyful uh, activities. Uh, last month, I went home for my 20th year reunion, which was not necessarily a joyful occasion. It was a good one. There's a bunch of old people there. But during that weekend, my family, behind my back, coordinated a family picture session. <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, my entire family, like sisters and mother and everything. And uh, I would rather go to the doctor or the dentist <laughs> easily, any day, than take a large portion of my day to pretend smile for someone I don't know. Now, the photographer was great. She really was. She was wonderful. She was fun. She was gifted. And she did something that no one's ever done before. We're about two minutes into this, and she's taking pictures, and she turns to someone else in my family and says, he doesn't smile ever, does he? Pointing to me. <laughs> and they were like, well, sometimes. You just can't ask him. See, that's right. You just can't ask him to do it. Um, the, the sort of it is that joy comes naturally for some people more than others, and in some situations and circumstances for people more than others. Um, but it would be a grave mistake to say it's just easy for anyone to be joyful and happy all the time, and, which is what I feel like a picture session is demanding of me. Just be happy. Anyway, um, the reality is most of us have to fight for joy, and we do. We fight for it. It's like we somehow intuitively believe that we must gather all the right ingredients. It's like a, it's a giant quest throughout the world. It's like a video game. You have to go to the top of that mountain and get this secret ingredient and that. And the mixture looks like one part success and performance, one part peace and comfort, one part fun, and one part rest. And it's an exhausting search. Then you get it all together and you hope it works. And it does, maybe for a moment. And then it falls apart and you can't keep it. That's often what our experience of joy is like. Uh, there are some others in the room that have a different view of how they gain joy. And those are the romantics, which is you just need to be deeply loved enough. And you know what? That's, that's actually quite possible. And maybe you're on to something. We're going to ask tonight, is there some other way uh, than this work hard, gather together, and hope it fits together approach that we often do when we're trying to find joy? The text is Romans 5, 1 through 11. Uh, again, if you have questions that occur while you're listening, just text them. My phone's here somewhere. And uh, we'll deal with it later. Oh, there it is. There you go. Swab, you couldn't possibly have a question already. Okay. <laughs> So uh, Romans 5, 1 through 11, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, please pray with me.
Good Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things out of your word, things that lead to dependence upon you and great joy. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the stranger and uh, more painful things I've ever done is I, I had moved to Denver, Colorado for one week, and I was convinced by a bunch of friends uh, to hike a 14,000-foot mountain. Uh, I, was in, I was a young man. I was in good shape. I still am a young man, but I was a younger man, <laughs> and uh, I was still in good shape. And uh, so the plan was to drive an hour or hour or two out of town at, to, to, to camp at about 9,000 feet and then to hike up uh, in the morning. And that was not a bad plan, except for somewhere during the trip, we lost our minds and collectively agreed that we would hike the mountain during the night and sleep up there. Now, uh, it actually wasn't terribly dangerous, but the, the problem is we underestimated two things. The amount of suffering that would be involved in climbing the mountain, uh, and it's not like we lost anyone or anyone fell down the mountain and broke a leg. It was just hard. And it was harder because it was dark. Then secondly, we severely underestimated the amount of suffering that would be involved by staying on top of the mountain all night long. Because once you get to 14,000 feet, you're above tree level. And even in early September, the winds are howling. And it's about 40 degrees. And the only shelter you have is a rock wall about 8 inches. And so we laid down behind a rock wall in very thin sleeping bags and froze. And listened to each other breathe like we're taking our last breath. Because at 14,000 feet, the oxygen is really thin. And people are breathing like this. <laughs> and you keep thinking, like, that guy's going to die any minute. <laughs> and then, like, you don't realize you're breathing like that. And the reality is, we did all this because we were convinced that we would wake up in the morning and see the most beautiful sunrise ever. And even at night, while we're sitting up on the top of the mountain, freezing and breathing and being afraid we're going to have a heart attack, the view of the sky was unparalleled. It was just... It was remarkable. We could see with such clarity. The sun did rise, and it was beautiful. And we could see forever, in every direction it seemed. Uh, but, but we were suffering. Splitting headaches. I mean, this was common. Hey, I don't want to move. Could you take a picture for me? <laughs> like, that's how bad it was. We could have hiked another 14er with about a half-mile hike and just crossed it off the list. It was, like, it was from here to like the other side of campus. And we said, we're done. We're not going to do it. Let's go down. Uh, even though the view was spectacular and clear and we could see everywhere, we underestimated what the suffering would do. It, it was beautiful. It was joyful. We had that mountaintop experience for a second, but we couldn't stay there. And in some ways, what we have here is a, a metaphor for the way we think about joy. You know, the, the idea of a mountaintop experience is you get to the top of the mountain by extraordinary effort, and it's amazing. It's wonderful. But you can't stay there. And uh, if you do, like we did at some point, the suffering meets you even there. It's just hard to stay there. You can't escape reality up there. The reality is we can't, even if we get joy, we can't keep it. It slides through our fingers. Suffering breaks in and meets us. But we're going to see tonight that there's a great new joy that's ours when we see the scope of God's love for us. There's a great new joy that can be ours when we see the scope of God's love for us. And we're not going to move too far from the mountaintop. In fact, it's the best place to see the scope of his love, 14,000 feet up. What we're going to have is the 14,000 view, view foot, 14, foot view of God's love. 
We're going to look at how deep it is and how wide it is and how long it is. So first, how deep is his love? And imagine, if, we were, if you will, we're on top of the mountain, and we're able from there to get a pretty good pictorial representation of the amount of suffering that was involved in getting from way down there to way up here. We've traveled a great distance. And here, and in these 11 verses, we get a pretty good idea of where we've come from in order to experience this mountaintop. The mountaintop, in some ways, is what Paul says in verse 1. If we're up here at all, it's because God's done something for us. He's justified us. Therefore, since we've been justified. Paul's talking about a group of people, people that have latched onto Jesus by faith. He calls them we. And he says they've been justified. But he has other things to say about them in this chapter. And most of them aren't particularly flattering. In the second half, starting in verse 6, while we were weak, something no one likes to be, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Yep, that's right. He's talking about the weak people. They're weak and ungodly. They don't love God. In verse 8, God shows his love for us. You know, that's another version of we. I suppose you knew that. Uh, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Weak, ungodly sinners. And it gets a little bit worse, perhaps. Verse 10, if while we were the Enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by his, the death of his son. So, weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. That's how God describes us in our natural condition. You know, if, 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 that's, uh, if we're starting on the mountaintop, it would seem like our natural starting condition is somewhere below the mountain. That's how God describes us. We are unwilling and unable in any way to save ourselves or help ourselves or to earn God's love. If, if we're taking the 14,000 foot view Foot, foot view of God's love. Nothing I just said would move God to love us, right? Weak, ungodly sinners, enemies. And if there was a weak, ungodly sinners, enemies club on campus, would you go dying to get involved in it? Would you want to do outreach to them? I'm serious. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of people God's talking about. And yet we see that God is for us and does something for us. In each one of these verses, 6, 8, and 10, the text tells us Jesus died. Each verse, weak and ungodly, Jesus died for you. Sinners, Jesus died for them. Enemies, Jesus died for them. He died for the weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. Verse 8 sums it up perfectly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You should memorize that. Even if you're not a Christian, I, w- I would say you should memorize that. Because if someone asks you what Christianity is when you decide I'm done with this, you could at least clearly say, they would say it's this. That while people were sinners, Christ died for them. Because that's what Christianity is about. And that word shows actually means more like demonstrated or proves. It's not just like, da-da, trick. No, you really want to know the nature of God's love. You really want to see what it's like? It's this. You don't deserve it at all. And he died for you anyway. This is the nature of God's love for us. You can see it in the cross. Then he also takes that great love and does something else with it. It's not only a love that's for us in the cross. It's also in us. If you're a Christian, verse 5 tells us God's love has been poured into your heart by the Spirit. God has taken that love that led Jesus to the cross and said, I'm going to put the Spirit in you. And his job, among other things, is going to be to remind you of that 
constantly, over and over. One of the Spirit's ministries to you, if you're a Christian, is to remind you how much Jesus loves you. To make you deeply aware of that. This is the two means by which you can be sure God loves you. These are the only two means, I would really say, in the end, by which you can be sure God loves you. Jesus died for you. And God in some way has moved in and constantly reminds you, not every moment, but persistently reminds you that he loves you. The 20th uh, president of the U.S., James Garfield, is pretty much famous for nothing, unfortunately. He may have made his mark uh, in other ways. He didn't really have much of a chance because he was the second of our four U.S. presidents to be assassinated. After about 200 days in office, he was shot by a stalker. He was shot on June 2nd, 1881. He finally died on September 19th. If you notice, that's actually about two or three months. And he suffered a great bit during that time. Uh, They couldn't find one of the bullets. Actually, Thomas Edison created a device where they could have found the bullets, only the doctors weren't smart enough to use the device. Um, But because of the length of his uh, demise, some three months, there are lots of historians and even medical experts to think one of the reasons he eventually succumbed to the shot wasn't the bullet. It was the persistent prodding and examination of people with unsterilized instruments and fingers as they searched for the bullet. That ultimately it may have been infection that killed him and not the bullet. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because it's the nature of, of almost anyone that's interested in God to want to know, does God really deeply, truly love me? And most often when we do that, what we do is we don't turn to Scripture. We don't look to the cross. We look at ourselves. We look at ourselves and say, am I lovable? Have I worked hard enough? Do I feel loved? Do I feel good about myself? And what you're doing is self-conscious navel-gazing. You're poking and prodding yourself. (laughs) I'm serious. That's what you're doing. You're examining yourself in a way that almost never leads to health. If you want to know if God loves you or not, deeply, truly, look first to the cross. That's the accurate measure of how much God loves his people, that he would die for them. If you believe that, that's your hope, and you latch on to that, then it should be normal that God would periodically remind you by his spirit as he works in your life of his love for you. Well, that's how deep his love is. Let's look at how wide it is. And by wide, I mean God doesn't just make us right. He comes bearing gifts. The text says he justifies us and reconciles us. Justified means he makes us right legally. We're no longer guilty. But also reconciled us means we're no longer enemies. We're no longer alienated as family members. He welcomes us as a father. In other words, it's wide because the father's arms are wide open to receive you and, and to give you things. As you come into this family, welcomed by the father, you you get some things. And the first couple of verses tell us what they are. And it's quite a nice list. Verse 1, since we've been justified, if you've trusted in Jesus and God's justified you, if you've trusted in Jesus, he has. He's declared you free from penalty. He's declared you right. Then these things follow. You have peace with God. Verse 1, you have peace with God. This is not to be mistaken for peace Inside your guts. That should come too. But this means, you know, this text later, earlier said that you're enemies with God. That basically means you were basically much of your life sitting in God's lap, slapping him in the face. <laughs> really, depending on him at the same time saying, you're not giving me what I want. Come on. What's wrong with you? That's what we do, actually, still. 
And uh, God, frankly, was angry with you too. There was a mutual hostility. But this text says if you've embraced Jesus, the war is over completely. There's not a treaty. There's not a truce. The war is over. The past has been forgotten. You're at peace. In verse 2, you're in a state of grace. This is your status. This is a broad place of favor. You're not on parole. You're not on probation. You're not on notice. This is the way it is. I read this question recently. This was a hard one. Uh, We were debating this with some students. Would you rather stand on on an 8-inch wide ledge, 100 stories high, for 30 minutes, or have to walk 25 feet across a girder 18 inches wide, also 100 stories high. Yeah, so people had really strong opinions about this. In the end, the effect is pretty much the same. You've got to stay on this very narrow thing or you're going to die. That's the way many of us think about God's grace and what he's done for us. He's made us right, and he's put us on this high pedestal. (laughs) And it's up to us to stay there and not fall off. That's the way a lot of us often think about God's love. I mess up, he doesn't love me anymore. He must not care about me anymore. But that's not the picture here at all. The picture here is more like going home for fall break. I know this is not all of your experiences. To a family that does love you, and you open the door, and they run out with their arms wide open. And it's a welcome home. Welcome into our big, broad, loving home. We know you and love you. That's the picture here. At peace, in grace, with the hope of glory. Verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, if you've trusted in God, you've been justified, then the gifts are he's forgiven your past, you're at peace. He's with you in the present, you're in a good place, his grace. And even your future is pretty secure. The hope of glory is I'm going to get to see Jesus, his glory, because I love him because he gave everything for me. And when I see him, I'm also going to become like him. This phrase, hope of glory, is really condensed. We're going to study it a lot in chapter 8. That's what it means. In the end, I'm going to see the one who's glorious, Jesus. And I can't wait to do that because he's beautiful and I can't wait to be with him. But also, when I see him, he's going to make me right completely. All the broken places, all the hurt places, all the places I've broken by my mismanagement and stupidity, all the places other people are broken in me. He's going to make that all right. He's going to make me like him. Peace, grace, and glory. An old pastor friend of mine uh, used to tell this story about this man in a small town in Tennessee. He used to walk around town. He looked like a homeless man. He lived like a pauper. He'd uh, walk around town gathering stuff, recyclables, whatever, and he would ride the public bus or even just catch a ride. And occasionally he'd, he'd say something like, hey, could you drop me off at the bank? And naturally the bus driver or the person driving would say, which bank? And the guy would say, it don't matter none. Come to find out, when this guy dies, it really didn't matter none. Because he had $25,000 in that bank, $120,000 in that bank, $75,000 in that bank. He had, money, bank in, he had money in every bank in town. Yeah. Some of you are thinking, like, well, I could do that if I put, like, $5 in that bank. <laughs> so as long as I don't have a minimum checking amount, I could do that. Um, which is great, but it raises the question, like, why does this guy live like a homeless pauper? And that's us. If you're a Christian, struggling with joy and contentment, wondering, does God really love me? Living like you've got no resources whatsoever, 
stop and realize. Stop on top of the mountain and look down. This is what Jesus has done for me, gave himself for me. And look around. He's given me peace with him. He's given me a broad place. I'm safe here. I'm welcomed into the family. And, and he's given me the hope of glory of the future, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay. He's going to fix all these things. I'm going to get to see him. He's given me all these riches. There's a song we sang, and some of you who are fairly new may be wondering, like, REF's pretty nice, and Derek's a little weird, but the people are great. But why do they sing all these old songs? And we're going to talk about that more in the future. We're not committed to only singing old songs. But one of the reasons we do sing old songs is because we have lines like this. Soul then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. And this is just a rich line full of great theology. And what it's telling you is if you're a human being and you're trying to get over the hurdles that are trying to sap you of life, sin, care, worry, you really need to know your full salvation. And frankly, God loves you in, in, in some very thin sense of it isn't enough. You actually need to know robustly that he loves you. How much does he love you? Not that he would send his own son to die for you. Is that enough? It comes with peace. And it comes with joy. And it comes in a, in a broad place. And you, and you can't lose it just like that. It's a good place. There's a hope for, the, hope for the future that he knows you and loves you and cares for you. We looked at the depth. We looked at the width. Now, lastly, the length. And in some ways, we've already started talking about this when we talk about the hope of glory. The question is, you know, God loves me deeply. He loves me with all these things. But will he always love me? That's the length. Will he always love me? All the way through my life, no matter what happens? This is great. Like, as we were walking in... On the side there. Um, three years ago, I was like, hey, three years ago we came to a large group. Do you remember that? He's like, no, because he was two years old. It's like, well, halfway through the sermon, you, you jumped out of your mommy's arms and you ran down the aisle and jumped in my arms, and I had to finish the sermon like that. Yeah, that was actually probably the best thing about that message. So, um, anyway, the, uh, we're asking how long, and really there, I think what we're getting at is the idea, the reality that God's love will go with us through the end. We want to know, do you really love me? You know me. Do you know what I'm really like? Will you really love me? That's the depth of his love. Will your love be enough? Is your love sufficient? Because if it's not, I'm going to go looking for joy somewhere else. That guy, that job, that sin, I'm going to find joy. We don't say it that baldly. We don't say it that boldly. That's the way we think. I'm going to find joy somewhere. This question is, Will you love me all the way through the end? No matter what. To the very end. And this text tells us he will. Into glory. You know, if we're standing on top of the mountain, this is as far as you can see. Through the horizon, into the heavens on the other side. That's what it means that he'll love us, that we have the hope of glory. That he'll love us right into the moment we meet Jesus our Savior. It also means that as we go that way throughout life, we're sure to encounter suffering. Verse 3, none of us have privileged access to any place in this creation where you can avoid this. We're all going to suffer. 
almost all of us have to some extent. Some of us are now. It's unavoidable. And, and verse 3 tells us that when it comes, we shouldn't ask, does God love me? Is God punishing me? Because often this is the way it happens when suffering comes. What did I do to deserve this? Do you still love me? Why is it like this? The question doesn't even come up. Instead, all Paul says is, you should be able to rejoice in the midst of it. And, and what he's saying here is not rejoice in the sufferings themselves. That's sort of masochistic. I, actually, I was trying to think of an image that uh, sort of represents that misunderstanding. I can't come up with anything except for this movie you've, none of you have probably seen. It's Happy Gilmore. Yeah, all the guys have seen it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, the scene where he jumps into the batting cage and he's taking the fastballs off the chest. Oh, he's taking fastballs off his chest. Yeah, that's great. You know, he's delighting in the pain and the suffering. Um, it's crazy. Um, and they think he's crazy, too. Uh, the idea here is not that we're delighting in the sufferings. It's that we know that we can have joy in the midst of them because God's good. And because he's using them. A couple things to keep in mind is the Bible tells us even Jesus had to suffer. Had to suffer. Not just to die, but he had to suffer to become mature. If you don't believe me, you can read Hebrews. The book of Hebrews mentions it a couple times. That in order to be the kind of man and high priest that he was supposed to be, to do his job for us, he actually had to live life and encounter suffering. We can't avoid it either. And this is the process, one of the ingredients that God uses to make us like Jesus. And he will use it, for sure, until he makes us exactly like Jesus, until he brings us into glory. Uh, a good example of this is the emperor moth. Any emperor moth example, experts here? So uh, a, a man found a cocoon of the emperor moth. He took it home to watch it. And one day a small opening appeared, and for several hours the moth struggled to emerge uh, but couldn't seem to force one part of its body past a certain point. After a while of watching this thing struggle, the man took a pair of scissors and snipped the remaining bit of the cocoon. The, the moth emerged easily then. Its body was large and swollen. Its wings were tiny and shriveled. And he expected that in a few hours it would reach its proper development and spread its wings and fly away. Instead, though, it didn't develop. And it became a creature... Uh, well, that struggled because its body remained large and its wings remained small. It, it would seem that God's way of forcing fluid uh, from the body into the wings involved the moth's struggle out of the cocoon. In order to fully develop, it had to struggle. The merciful snip was actually, ignorantly, cruel. It was cruel. Sometimes the struggle is what we need. I'm not saying the struggles in themselves are good. I'm not saying the sufferings themselves are good. I would not say that. I'm saying God uses them for good. And we'll talk about this more in chapter 8 as well. But God is able to take all your suffering and trials, even the boring ones, and use them for your good to make you like Jesus. It's actually a means in which he actually loves you. This is a, it's important. It means in the midst of your suffering, whether right now you're just suffering through stats, or you're, you're really suffering because someone in your family is sick, or you're really suffering because you have a broken past that no one knows about, and you don't want to tell anyone. You need to know it's possible, probable, 
likely, actually promised, that God can and will use those things for your good. Not saying those things are good. I'm not saying any of those things are good. I'm saying God has the ability to use all those things for your good, to redeem even those broken things, to make you like Jesus, and that you can have joy in the midst of them. So let's go back up to the top of the mountain again. We have the depth and the breadth and the length of his love. And this should be reason for joy. That's a question. How can you be joyful? How can you be joyful? The depth and breadth and length of his love. I mean, somewhere deep down, deep down, all of you really long to be loved. One or two of you might not. We need to go to talk to a counselor. But deep down, almost all of us want at least one person to know us deeply and to love us forever. Really. And what I want you to know is this text says that. All the way down, with all the gifts, arms wide open forever. If the, and when someone does love you like that, you look like, I mean, everyone notices. Because you're like, even me. <laughs> Even me, when I met my wife, like, oh, Derek, you're happy. Yes, I am. (laughs) Stop talking about it. (laughs) Yes, even me. Joy comes naturally. And if you know Jesus and you know this about him, the joy, I'm not saying it's easy, should come naturally. Even in the midst of suffering. Nicholas Walterstorff, a Yale professor and theologian, brilliant man who lost his son, So he knows suffering. And he writes, God's not only the God of the sufferers, that's this text, but he's also the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart through the prism of my tears. I've seen a suffering God. And this is a great mystery. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power. Instead, he sent his beloved son to suffer like us. And through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining away our suffering, God shares it. That's the kind of God we have. And the nature of his love, that he actually shares your suffering. Jesus did this. He walked in your place. He suffered, and then he suffered for you. What does this mean for you? What does it, it really should mean something. It means he can love you. Can he really love me? Yes, all the way to the very depths of who you are. Will it, will it be enough? Or do I need to go look for joy in other places? You're free to live your life. I'm not saying that. You're supposed to rejoice in friendships and food and fun and work. But his love is sufficient. Will it last? The last of the end of your life and through every suffering. And this means that you need to stop seeking your ultimate joy, your ultimate joy, in your performance, in every relationship, and that sin you can't give up that gives you such wonderful momentary pleasure. Really. I mean, at the heart of it, almost all those things are about making us the kind of people that others would love. Why do you work so hard? Why do you work so hard? Is it actually because you want God to love you? Actually, it's probably because you want an employer to love you, or you want the world to recognize how awesome and smart you are. You want someone to notice. Why do you work so hard to be noticed by the other gender? Why do you work out so hard? 
spend some, well, it's college. We'll spend so much time getting dressed. And eh, we're not in the South. But you, know, you still, you want to be noticed and liked. Why? Because you want to be loved. You don't want everyone to love you, but you want one person to buy in. We want to be loved, right? And what I want to tell you is you, you shouldn't just stop. It's good to want someone to love you. But you don't have to seek your ultimate joy there. God sees you and loves you. And you can be joyful here, right here. Not all the freshmen are here, but I can tell you at least one of you is ready to pack it up and go home. Right? And some of you who have been here before, like last couple years you're thinking, like, yeah, I was like that last year. Can I actually live here and be joyful here? Or am I just doomed to four years of miserable discontentment? You can be joyful right here. Because he loves you. And lastly, this is my own personal application. This is good for me. Because God loves you all the way down and all the way across forever, you can stop taking yourself so seriously. I mean, really, you can stop taking yourself so seriously. God has taken you seriously and loved you. So you can smile. That's for me. (laughs) That one's for me. You can relax, you can have fun, you can rejoice. Okay, let's pray together.